Good morning. Welcome to Faith FM. You're listening to The Brecky Show, positively different news on 87.6, 87. 87.8 and 88. Uh, you're listening right across Australia. Um, it is. I think it's Wednesday today, Wednesday the 2nd of December, and you are with Minnie and... Renee, hello. Hey, Minnie. Hey, hello. And you guys can't see this, but we are back in our old studio. Yeah. By back in, I mean neither Renee or I have <laughs> worked in here. We've never been here, but it's nice. But it's nice. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it's actually quite good because we can both see the screen now. Our old room, yeah, we we're kind of all a bit spread out because of a bit more distance restrictions than we have here. Mm. And, uh, yeah, so only ever one person could, could comment. Anyway... Renee, how are you feeling? What is there anything you're particularly thankful for? I'm very thankful for fans. <laughs> I had my oh, fan on mm. blast yesterday. Mm-hmm. I went home. Oh, because we don't have an aircon, so with the, with the fan on, I was very grateful. I was just <laughs> thank you, fan, for all you do. <laughs> you do it well. <laughs> I'm a big fan of the fan. You know what? When I was a kid, actually, still now, if I have the choice, but I couldn't sleep without a fan on. Yeah, I don't know. It was like. It was the wind on my face, but yes. also the sound of it. Mm-hmm. And then I remember, oh, I don't know. My mum and I went through this phase. I can't remember how old I was. And she would just come in, take my fan like when I was at school something, and I'd go get it back because she was like, oh, stop using this fan. I was like, no, I can't sleep without it. <laughs> Your security blanket, but it's a fan. Yeah, but it's a fan. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, and even in winter, I just have like slightly on. Yeah. But do not. I, I right get to that. Yeah. I, I like I like it. I, I also have my fan on yeah, all fantastic. the time. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> but you're right. It has been pretty hot. Yes. And then it stormed last night. Yeah. Gross. Yeah. <laughs> Don't do you, understand. Do you enjoy your storms or not so much? Eh, uh, I'm impartial to them. Mm-hmm, Could mm-hmm. do without them. Yeah. You? <laughs> I love them. Um, not if I'm like directly where the lining is. You're listening to the Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Okay, so what do we have in the world of good news? Well, we have um, a story about how Indigenous knowledge is helping, can help prevent Australian bushfires. Mm. Okay, so there is one organisation that's turning the ancient but not too long ignored potential solution of Indigenous fire practices. Um, so Fire Sticks Alliance is a network aiming to revive Indigenous land management, wisdom and techniques. So basically, um, before Colonization. Indigenous Australians used fire not only to control the buildup of leaf litter, um, as you know, you know, going to our bushes, mm-hmm. there's so much leaf litter, um, but it was also to maintain ecosystems and to prevent healthy, healthy growth. Um, and so, the lead uh, practitioner at Fire Sticks, he says, when we talk about implementing Indigenous fire knowledge, we're talking about managing the land to restore landscapes and to improve the flora and fauna. It's about the water quality, the animals putting food on the landscape so it's more than just you know avoiding bushfires for Mm. later or or stopping leaf litter build up it's about actually getting the land to become healthy promoting a healthy ecosystem Mm. um and so many of those things do play into each other right yes like we we actually know this yes yes (laughs) like no no if we just change these things significantly, it won't impact impact anything else. <laughs> <laughs> it might. It might. It might. <laughs> um, so yes, according to Stevenson, who I just wrote a uh, uh, read a quote from Victor Stevenson, he says that cultural burning is very different to the Western ideas of hazard reduction. Mm-hmm. Um, so it applies fire to the landscape. To so Western idea uh, uh, um, of 
burning. It, their idea is to manage the buildup of fire, of fuel. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Um, but the problem is with these hazard reduction burns, they often can be too hot. And that's a problem. Um, this can destroy local habitats rather than help manage the fuel. Mm-hmm. Um, and so areas that are managed in this way have been known to change over time and become unrecognizable because the balance in the local ecosystem has been removed by the wrong application of fire. So indigenous fire, man- fire management uses low intensity, uh, uses a low intensity process called the cool burn, which protects the landscape. So it, re- it restores habitats. It helps food grow with a focus on burning to um, produce native grasses. Mm. Um, so this this is based off knowledge um, that Indigenous Australians already knew and have used for hundreds of years before colonisation. Mm. So um, so so these are they call them the good fires. So mm. this is the uh, Fire Sticks Alliance. They say the good fires they're nurturing and it's all about putting love in the landscape and spending more time to burn the right way. Um, and when we, when we do that, we look after the land better. So Victor Stevenson, um, he's working with many Indigenous and non-Indigenous communities to restore the landscapes and make it more resilient to the impacts of bushfires through cultural burning practices. Um, not only that, they're going forward in, 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 in pushing that the Indigenous people lead this space. Mm. It's not just about getting the knowledge from from people and saying, okay, just tell us what to do. It's, yeah, we'll it's, it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's <laughs> getting them to say, hey, you guys lead us, teach us, tell us what to do, um, you know, show us the way and um yeah and, and we'll we'll go under your leadership. We'll follow your lead because you know you guys are the experts in this. Um this is this is your land. This is you know um so so it's really about um, looking after the land, but then allowing them to lead in that space. And I think mm. that was, that's really cool. No, that's, a, that's an amazing point on leadership too, because I think sometimes when someone is an authority, it's so easy to go, yeah, just you just tell me, I'll just do it. Like, yes. I, I can do it better. Yeah. It'll just cut out all the middlemen. Mm, not really. Yeah. You know? yeah. It's about empowering mm. empowering others. Yeah, so that's really good. Um, more, on, more with some good news. Uh, a couple... Okay. Okay. You know, we know we've, we've lived through the pandemic. Um, many people have had to cancel their weddings, right. Yeah. Or, or had to down, down, downgrade. Downsize. Is that the word? Downsize. Yeah. So what you mean? I don't know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Less like, people. You know, maybe they, you know, planned for a, a, an event of 500 people. And now they've had to, I guess mm. it's, now it's just them and the pastor yeah. or <laughs> someone marrying them. And so, you know, um, weddings have really changed for the last few, few months during the pandemic because of restrictions. Mm. Um, uh, and, and such was the case for a Chicago residents, Emily Bug and Billy Lewis. Originally, they had planned a very lavish uh, wedding, but as the pandemic wore on, they didn't want to wait to, to get married. They decided, you know what, we'll just trade our upscale plans for a small ceremony, which which was really nice in, in City Hall. So they did that. But um it did leave them in a conundrum. What happens now with all the money that they put down to spend on all the big stuff that w- they would need for a big scale, mm. you know, wedding? Um, what do you do with the non-refundable deposits? <laughs> <laughs> what do you yeah. do with all that? Good question. So, <laughs> things like, you know, the dress, the DJ, they were write-offs. Um, however, they decided that having their health and being together made up for these uh, for this stuff. Um, and all was not at a loss. The reception 
reception venue agreed to let them put their deposit down to hold on a hold to be used for a future charity event, which is awesome. Um, the wedding photographer shifted gears to record the couple's small but heartfelt event. Um, but that just left them with $5,000 of catering deposit. Oh, it's a lot of money. Um, <laughs> but rather than just roll the money into an event, uh, they decided, this couple decided to spread their joy to others less fortunate. So Emily Bug, an outreach worker at uh, Thresholds, which is a nonprofit geared towards helping sufferers of bipolar disorder, schizophrenia and other psychi- uh, psychiatric illnesses, knew exactly where she wanted the money to go. Um they decided that they would, uh, instead of the original 150 person guest list that was transformed into 200 boxed Thanksgiving dinners, um, for the city residents. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, you know, for people who are really struggling, um, I guess to put food on the table, it was really nice to receive a free meal um, because this couple, you know, instead of um, (laughs) using the five grand for themselves, they decided to to give it out to the community in, in serving for Thanksgiving. That's awesome. And we've actually had a few of those sort of stories, like through this COVID time, mm-hmm. like where people are getting married or, you know, people, and then it's just, oh, plans have changed. What do we do? Yeah. Let's find people who need it. Yes. And that's that's something that's satisfying in a whole new way, right? Mm-hmm. Like the memories that you go, oh, do you remember the time on that day? Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. it's, I'm not negating that people should or shouldn't, you know, have a nice day. Like yeah. do what you want. Yes. But it's just interesting that this year has provided the opportunity that kind of people have had to mm. um, think about different different ways of doing it. Absolutely. You're listening to The Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Okay. So, on to some news. I actually, little, uh, what is it called? Preface? Context? Epilogue? Whatever yeah. you want to call it. Yeah. Introduction. I am really fascinated by um, war. Oh. I don't love it. Mm. But I'm fascinated by the psychology of humanity that comes out, right? Uh, yes. Yeah. You see the very best and the very worst of of people, yeah. you know, how they can respond. And obviously it's been a very long time since we've had any world wars, but there are still wars that are happening kind of all around the, the world at different times. But you can tell there is a big difference between mm. nations who are experiencing war. Ooh. And honestly, people yeah. in Australia, we don't – war is not on our land. Uh, you know, we don't have uh, yeah, threats yeah. of – Bombs, I guess. It, no, hundred percent. You're not in gunfire, like. Yeah, I'm not afraid for my life if yes, I. Yes, in that out. sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So there's a, there's a massive difference. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. But um, in World War Two, there was a man. Uh, he was kind of just an ordinary seaman um, in the Navy crew. His name is Edward, known as Teddy uh, Sheehan, and he's become the first. Yeah, as I said, ordinary seaman to be awarded the Victoria Cross, oh. which is Australia's military honor. So he was 18 years old in 1942. Um, there was a ship, the HMAS Armadale. It was rapidly sing- sinking as it came under heavy attack. Um, the Chief of Navy Vice Admiral, Admiral uh, Michael Noonan said the Tasmanian, Tasmania's, oh, I can't even speak this morning. <laughs> Tasmania? <laughs> the Tasmanians, yeah, yeah there we go. <laughs> Decision not to leave the ship and save himself ended up saving the lives of 49 crew members and that his choice uh, – and that as he – oh, I can't – what am I saying? Basically, those who remained on this – those who remained 
had the chance of survival because of his sacrifice. I don't know why that was so hard for me to get out. (laughs) Thanks for keeping with me on that one. (laughs) And I was actually, I've I've really been thinking about this because I know this is a war story, but I was like, is that not actually the call of the Christian? Mm. It's like, yes, we're we're in our war. Mm. Like we we know we have a spiritual warfare going on. Yeah. That we are part of, we can't see it. Yeah. So that yeah. feels harder, yes. right? Yeah. Because it was like, oh, yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, we're safe, we're fine. Yeah. But anyway, he goes on to say that Teddy did not choose to sacrifice in an attempt to win the war. He did it to save his friends. Um, one man, Victor, or Ray as he is known, Leonard is the last surviving Armadale crew member. And at the time he was 19 and he remembers as he was swimming to shore with some of the other survivors that they were talking about Teddy's actions. Uh, yeah, so basically... The ship was going down. Teddy remained, um, had access to some guns and things and oh. co- had the ability to damage some of the enemy's aircrafts okay. that were coming to yeah. bomb or shoot at them or whatever. So he was defending his He friends. was defending. So they had a chance so to So they had a chance maybe? to get away. Okay. Yeah. So okay. I don't know where they were swimming to. Yeah. They must have been close enough to shore that they could swim. They could. Yeah. <laughs> if you're in the middle of the ocean, whoo, yeah. uh, not <laughs> a fun time. And, yeah, so this man, Victor, just said that I silently thanked him as I swam as fast as I could. Then I looked around and saw the last foot or two of the ship disappear beneath the waves. Mm. Uh, so his family, mm. um, Teddy's family, has been petitioning for quite a while mm. to just have a recognition or an award or something um, because, you know, he went down with the ship. And I don't really know what the terms are to receive a Victoria Cross, mm. but it's kind of been like, oh, no, not quite. Like, yes, we know we know his story, but not yeah. quite. Yeah. Uh, but they kept petitioning and just different reasons and so he's finally yeah. been awarded this it was given to his nephew Gary Ivory okay. um, yeah and I was like that's I was at a wedding earlier this year actually speaking of COVID weddings yes. there were restricted uh, numbers uh, but I was at this wedding and the pastor made this comment he said we're inspired by acts of unselfish love because oh what do you say unselfish love is what we were designed for and I was like, whoo, mm. you know what I mean? Because I can do this. I'm like, oh, I go you. Yeah. And I think I think a lot of us want to have that more in our lives, right? But we look at what it costs this guy. Yeah. You know, are we are we willing to take that? And that's, in a way, I would argue what, again, the call of the Christian life is. You know, take my cross and follow me. Jesus is going, yeah, yeah, you got to die yourself, but also let's save others along the way. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Anyway, I was like, cool story. Well done you. Amazing, yeah. Um, in another story, so this is a bit more in a political sphere, I guess. So in West Papua New Guinea, separatists have made a declaration to form a new provisional government, um, which is basically rejecting Indonesia's rule. Okay. Um, so it's been a significant escalation of a decades-long battle for independence. The United Liberation Movement for West Papua, known as ULMWP, is a coalition of independence groups and it's self-proclaimed Independence Day marked on December 1st, which was yesterday uh, for us. So they want to reclaim land, appoint their own ministers and cabinets, and they just basically have said, we don't want to bow down to Indonesia's rule anymore. Like, it's just, they don't like it. It's been a whole, um, there has been actually quite a lot of conflict. Um, They, the independence groups estimate, Maybe five hundred thousand Melanesians have been killed oh my um, in this, mm. uh, you know, by by Indonesian military. Mm. Is that you know the Indonesian government has argued that there haven't been any violations of human rights, um, 
But the independent groups are saying, yes, of course there has been. Mm -hmm. You know, we've seen it. It's one of those things. As outsiders, it's really easy for us to sit here and comment. Yeah, I haven't been. Yeah, you know, I don't know what it's like to uh, live in that space um, or feel that feel that sense of loss of freedom and um, quite oppression. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So the history of this actually started years and years ago. So in 1949, Indonesia and West Papua under Dutch uh, reign, Indonesia became independent. West Papua didn't, so they came under Indonesia rule still. Uh, so the Dutch recognised the cultural and ethnic difference of West Papua and Indonesia and they tried to kind of help the West Papuans kind of learn what it looked like to take independence for themselves. It never really happened. Inhabitants on the east of the border, which is what we just know as Papua New Guinea, celebrate freedoms that those living on the west have not enjoyed, says um, artist uh, Andrews Paul. He's an Indigenous Papuan who was born in Papua New Guinea but came to Australia two years ago. Um, yeah, there's there's pretty hectic history between all of them. As I said, in, Indonesia has repeatedly denied any human rights abuses, uh, but men like a civil resistance leader Victor Yaimo has been previously imprisoned for his activism uh, for the freedom movement, and he claims that genocide, ecocide, ethnocide are still very seriously happening at the hands of Indonesian rule today. And I didn't know this, but Andrews Bull, again, the artist, said that New Guinea is home to the third largest rainforest on Earth and it also boasts the largest gold mine in the world, which is crazy mm. because they're some of the poorest people. Well, in Indonesia, they're the poorest people. Yes. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting. It's interesting to me that this happens, right? Often mm. we see places which are rich in natural resources have severely high rates of poverty. Yeah because it seems to be a place where people can exploit, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, I want to be in control, Yeah, so I'm going to press you to do it sort of thing, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, so look, we're going to kind of have to see what happens just as time goes on, but the people have just said, you know, this is why West Papuans are fighting for the rights of self-determination. We just want our land back. Yeah. Um, and I think I think many humans have this desire, right? We want freedom. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Can you have freedom and peace? Outside of Jesus, I don't know. Hmm. And I don't say that flippantly. Like, I don't know what it's like to live in a place where this is going on. Yeah. But I think sometimes freedom comes at the cost of peace. Hmm. Sometimes peace comes at the cost of freedom. Anyway. Deep thoughts. No. <laughs> well, it's a thought. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, we'll just have to see what happens um, over time to come. You're listening to The Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Okay, so today for our interview, as some of you guys do know, if you're regular listeners, we normally have David helped on a Wednesday. Uh, we do not this week, nor did we last week. Instead, we have Jennifer Skews. Is that right? Is it Jennifer Skews? Yes, Jennifer Skews. S K U S. Awesome. Well, welcome back to the show. It's good to have you again. Thank you. And so last week we spoke about burnout, and you kind of touched on a whole bunch of things to do with that and kind of the ways it manifests physically and the emotional and mental kind of toll it can take on us. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, so today we're just kind of wondering if you could tell us some more. Tell us more about this amazing brain and the way it can put, you know, it uses this defence mechanism to keep us protected even though it can kind of lead to some not-so-great health things. But, um, okay. Yeah. Right. Well, we certainly are. As the psalmist said, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Mm. And when we're under stress, the brain reacts in a way that compromises our function. And we talked a bit about it 
last week where we talked about the impact of adrenaline and cortisol and um, it's certainly what it does it gets the brain racing we can be more impulsive can't make good decisions um, so we compromise our functioning particularly if we stay on that or maintain that for a long time which heads into burnout mm. now interestingly the brain is still an unknown frontier in science they might know about 50 percent of brain function with technology today so it's one of those things where it's constantly unfolding and we're learning. Um, but they have found that we have um, quite a comprehensive brain, but there are three main areas that work together. It's like we've got a three-brain system. Mm -hmm. We have a survival brain, and that's what kicks in when we're under stress or trauma. We have a, an emotional brain, which is the largest part of the brain, and that's where we store emotional memories. And that's where we have what's called neuroplasticity. In other words, it's like the brain cells are like plasticine and they can be moulded and grow. And we can actually grow lots of cells and we're meant to be daily doing things that help to grow cells. Mm. Well, of course, stress goes the other way. It doesn't allow us to grow cells in the right way. Um, but those areas that are neuroplastic have memory banks and we store emotional memories as well as our visual contextual memories. And then there's a third part of the brain, which is the part that's listening to everything now, which is your thinking brain. And that's conscious. That part of you is aware of what's going on. It's aware of the world around you. And that is compromised when the whole brain system is compromised. So we talked last week about um, the adrenaline factor. And when there is some sort of threat, the survival brain kicks in and tells the adrenals to pump adrenaline to fight or flight. Mm. So the aim is to get back to what we call flow. Once the, the stress is over, calm ourselves down. And we're going to talk about a bit about that as well, how to do that. Then we've reset the mechanism and we're back to a calm state. If not, we go into what's called a freeze mode where we're constantly maintaining the adrenaline levels um, and we stay in a highly stressed state. So the brain is a major player in this and how we work with that three brain system. So the other side of it is that the heart and the brain have a relationship as well. So what the heart's doing, particularly when we're stressed, is also very important. Um, because normally psychology focuses on the brain, but the last couple of decades there's been excellent research on the heart-brain connection. And they found that the heart and the brain talk together. They communicate constantly and that the heart communicates more with the brain than the brain with the heart, hmm. So, which is interesting um, yeah. because they're now finding the heart is really the centre of everything. It's the centre of our life. It's the centre of reactions to things um, and the brain in that sense is secondary in that the movement of the heart signals the brain. So when we have a stress response, it's because the heart has detected something, it's skipped a beat or it's had a, a reaction and the brain deems that as under threat because if the heart fails, the brain fails. So that's when the brain goes into this um, fight-flight mode um, so it's not until you calm the heart down that you can calm the brain and reset those that three brain system. And I, I'd imagine that when you're feeling stressed, we kind of know mm -hmm. that a lot of times um, 
emotions manifest with something physical, right? So say, oh, even just a small scale level, I don't love public speaking. If I get up to do something, I'll immediately, you know, get the sweaty palms, the heart racing, that sort of thing, right? And so it kind of makes sense that if you're – you've got this physical thing going, if you can slow, you know, people talk about like, okay, you slow your heart rate down and do some nice yep. deep breaths and, you know, <laughs> it sounds kind of silly but it actually makes sense in what, in light of what you're saying that that can have a really significant impact in those short moments of stress. Yeah. Well, this is where we've been created with a balancing mechanism mm-hmm. um, and that means for every reaction we can counterplay it and work with it it's like because there's a counterplay and for stress the heart and changing the heart rate and calming it down uh, as i said resets everything but what people do is try and think their way through it (laughs) physiology Mm. is still reacting and the worst is fear-based you mentioned about doing public speaking well there's a fear attached to that most people are afraid they'll make a mistake they'll look stupid they won't know what to say Um, things like that. And once that fear kicks in, of course, your heart rate's all over the place, spiking and uneven, and the brain is pumping bulk adrenaline. And that means you can't, it it becomes self-fulfilling if you're not careful because you're so stressed, you make the mistakes you fear. Yes. (laughs) Yes, ultimate stitch up, yeah. (laughs) It's, uh, and I know that one because I used to have a lot of anxiety around public speaking and I've had to work with that one there's a thing of feel of fear and do it anyway Mm. so you can actually be in a stress state and override it and do a good job um, but you still need to calm yourself down so oh i was just going to ask you a question about that then so Mm -hmm. you made a comment just um, a moment ago about how we sometimes try think our way through things that we're having an actual kind of physiological response to how, yes. do, how do people kind of balance that out? Because I think that's where a lot of times we go, okay, I've just got to think through it, get it right. Um, and th- there's an element, right, of changing our mm-hmm. sh- thinking that can be helpful. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, do you understand? What do you do? Yeah, what do you do, I guess, is the, is the short question. <laughs> mm. Well, it is. The body has simple solutions. This is where I said we've been created with a uh, balancing mechanism. And this is where to calm the heart down, there's a very simple breathing technique that has been um, well assessed to show that it resets the, the nervous system and the brain. And that is to about slowly breathing in with the focus on the heart. You know, it's like breathing through the heart. You then put your hand on your heart. And scientifically, they found if you rub the heart area or put your hand on it, it calms, calms the heart down. Interesting. Yeah, once you calm the heart down, you can reset the brain. But the breathing technique is to to count slowly in through the nose about five and then it's like breathing out through a straw through the mouth for about five and do that a few times and you'll find your heart area will start to calm down and then you'll find the brain will settle and you can refocus. You now have that brain balance and that in itself is another topic we can talk about, which is uh, to do with the left-right brain. It's a, a big area. So, yeah, and when you're in stress and trauma, unless you do that, you're loading, constantly loading every cell of your body with a traumatic moment because every cell has a memory bank. It's mm. not like your brain memory, but it remembers things, which is interesting, and it will manifest later on um, 
it'll uh, use that memory. A good example of that is muscle memory. When uh, bodybuilders have told me that when they first build the body, it takes months. And if they stop for a while, very quickly they go back to flab. But if they start working out, the muscle has a memory that very quickly rebuilds the muscle within a week or two, which is interesting. So that's a good example of muscle memory. So the whole system, we have a whole memory bank right throughout the body. It retains information. Which is actually a totally incredible system, isn't it? Oh, um, absolutely. Mm. So I had a question for you then because I know Mm -hmm. I spoke to you just very briefly before um, Mm -hmm. we did this interview today and you spoke that sometimes you do work with um, people who have kind of experienced some pretty serious trauma and abuse and you talked about um, how the brain can rewire itself. In in this context of when we're experiencing like quite intense levels of stress and with this, um, what did you call it, Uh, flight, fright, Flight, 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 flight yeah. principle, flight, flight and freeze. And freeze, yeah. So yeah. I'd imagine that if you're in a really intense space of this stress, you know, your mm-hmm. chemicals are being released, it's all hectic, that's based yes. on fear but it's also fear that's based in reality, right? Like yes. this is an experience Absolutely. that you are going through. Mm-hmm. It's not just yeah. I'm worried for what's to come because, you know, I might say the wrong thing. It's like, yeah, but if yeah. I say the wrong thing, there might be some serious consequences and you might have said the wrong thing before. So your cells all have a memory, so that intensifies your yeah. reaction. Yes. yes. So what does it look like for someone to begin, um, or maybe it, maybe it is similar to what you've just said, um, mm. to begin mm. to allow the brain to rewire its okay. response in that One, situation? Yeah, go on. Oh, I was just saying, in that situation. like Yeah. In when there is trauma, and I work with a lot of people who've got what I call lodge trauma, and it's on every cell of the body is got the trauma memory, that you don't need to go through an experience once you log it on to resurface it. And that's why if you think about the event or talk about it, it actually escalates and adds into it. It intensifies the memory of it. So the aim is not to talk about it. And what I do is help people recognise the, the trigger and the reaction to the trigger and do what I was, one of the things they do is calm the heart down. Mm. I work a lot with that because that actually allows the nervous system to release the trauma memory they've dialed up. It's like a downloading of that trauma. Um, when there's bulk trauma, it, there are a lot of other things I get people to do to calm because there's lots of things you can do. You go for a walk in nature, you're going to calm the heart down. You don't always have time to do that. So this is where the breathing technique is quick, simple, easy, but you've got to think to do it. I get people to practice it, not just wait till they need it. Yeah. So the brain, because the brain wires it in there, it likes that experience. It mm. likes to be calm. So once you keep doing it and the brain starts to wire it in, it's like a new pathway in your brain, It then you'll start to use it automatically if you're starting to feel stressed. So this is the sort of training I do, get people to work on the conscious level, but you've got to work from the heart and body to brain. You can't just work from the brain, particularly with trauma. So it's uh, depending on how long or how long that trauma is, like might go way back to childhood or it might be an event they've had more recently as to how long it can take for them to actually do that. But it does work. Mm. That's quite interesting to me just to listen to. So mm. it feels to me that there's a bit of a tension. Like if, if something's going – well, you know how we have things like Are You Okay Day, which I think I fully support, by the way. I think it's a great initiative to be checking yes. in with each other. But yes. it sounds like there's a bit of a tension between, on one hand, 
there are times people need to talk. But on the <laughs> other hand, if someone's yeah. going through something really serious, what you're saying is talking about it can make it, make it way worse. Yes. And this is wow. why people end up with post-traumatic stress disorder because they're either taught to talk about it to try and sort it, and you can't. The body is just logging it on even more. Mm. So this is where doing the physiology of trauma because trauma is in the body, it's in the brain. So working with the physiology can reset the nervous system and the brain to release the trauma. Mm. Uh, and this research that, I found mainly America and uh, some of the Europeans do this research, but I haven't found a lot of Australians doing this research. So I've um, sourced all this information from really good research in the United States, particularly from different people and different disciplines. So it's not just one person. And in using it, it does work. I've had a lot of success with people who, simply do that and they start to reverse the trauma process and release it. It's great to see. That's incredible. I imagine that would be. That would be such a special thing to get to see. Um, unfortunately, we've run out of time, Jennifer. It's been so good having you um, on today. Very informative for me. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.